This is Defender Radio. Defender Radio is brought to you by Gates Wildlife Control and the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. It's the week of January 6, 2013, and this is Michael Howie welcoming you to the Best of Defender Radio 2013, Part 2. APFA is just about ready to launch for 2014, but we wanted to share a few more of our favorite moments from the last year. Please enjoy. Brad Gates, Episode 105, November 11th, 2013. Joining us now is Brad Gates, owner of Gates Wildlife Control. Brad has spent over 20 years developing a truly humane method of removing wildlife from homes and urban areas, ensuring the safety of not only homeowners, but animals as well. Brad, what is it about your background that suited you specifically to working with wildlife in a humane manner? Um, first of all, I, I grew up on a ravine lot in Scarborough, and my parents embraced my interest in animals. Um, my dad had helped me build multiple cages to house all of my critters. Uh, I had the opportunity to raise rabbits and tumbler pigeons, which are pigeons that actually do backflips in the air, uh, squirrels, and uh, in particular, a raccoon, which I named Mandy. Um, Mandy was a huge impact on me. She was my constant companion for an entire summer when I was 16. And at the end of the summer, I realized that Mandy was a wild animal and I had to train her to to live in the wild or in an urban setting on her own. And when that experience was over, I realized that I wanted to turn my passion for wildlife into a career. And I approached the company that I received Mandy from, which was uh, a wildlife removal company. And basically, um, working for them during the summer, I learned how not to run a wildlife company. Um, They would often separate mothers from their babies. Um, They used uh, noxious gases like formaldehyde to drive animals out of attics. So at the end of that experience, I realized that there had to be an animal-friendly way to remove wildlife. Um, so I wanted to start a business doing that, but it wasn't until after I got my degree at the University of Guelph that I set out to start my own company. And it was a bit of a process, um, experimenting along the way, using um, techniques that didn't actually capture the animal, but more or less allowed the animal to leave the house as it normally would to forage through what we now call a one-way door, and then when it returned, it couldn't get back in. So very passive, um, no stress um, given to the animal because it's, it's going through a device that, uh, that doesn't embrace it. It just lets it uh, continue on its way. And then after um, we were successful in solving that element of our removal technique, we then had to look at reuniting the babies during the baby season with the mothers. And there was a real process going through that uh, where to put the babies, um, how to keep the babies warm, especially in the cool months of the spring when um, the temperatures could drop and the babies could die of um, exposure to the elements. So we put heating pads in the boxes, put the boxes close to the point of entry to allow the mother um, to come and get them and collect them one by one and remove them to an alternate den site. So really just having had the experience to, to work closely with animals when I was younger, and then um, 
having a passion for that and then turning that passion into um, into a business that really was animal-friendly and animal-focused. It seems that many pest control or wildlife removal companies immediately look to lethal control. Why do you think this is? Um, it certainly is the old way of thinking. Uh, the simple answer to that question is that killing is easy and it involves very little effort. Um, you don't have to consider what has drawn the animal to that location. Uh, you don't have to develop a long-term strategy. And it takes very little manpower to implement a kill strategy. Um, and this, fortunately, it is becoming a little bit less of a, a knee-jerk reaction to, to kill an animal. I think in today's society, more people, at least in Ontario, more people are concerned about the, the welfare of animals and they're looking beyond I hope, in most cases, um, not killing the animal and, and looking for humane solutions. Um, to jump to conclusions and assume that you can solve a wildlife problem by simply killing the target animal is, is very narrow-minded thinking. Um, the individuals making these decisions either haven't taken the time to understand the reasons why the wildlife is there in the first place, or they refuse to believe the science behind it. Um, it has been proven time and time again that by implementing population reduction strategies by killing animals in a given area, um, it doesn't provide for a long-term solution. Uh, in fact, in many cases, it can make the problem worse. Um, there was a study done by the Ontario Ministry of Natural Resources years ago where they reduced 60% of the raccoons that were living in a given area. And within two years after they knocked the population down, the population had rebounded to 1.3 times the original population size. So rather than leave it alone where the population probably wouldn't have increased, by moving in and, and killing these animals off, they actually increased the population over time. Um, so whenever a population of animals is unnaturally reduced by killing them off, the remaining animals, they have more access to food because there's nothing done to reduce the food in the area. And, and they, therefore, they'll have twice as many babies. Um, the animals that are in that surrounding area around where the reduction occurred will move in to take advantage of food and shelter opportunities. And that's how the population ends up rebounding um, higher than it originally was. Um, ultimately, wildlife problems need to be solved based on science. Uh, we know that um, the amount of food and shelter that exists in an area is what drives the population. If you have lots of food and lots of shelter, like in the city of Toronto, um, without reducing one of those components, you're going to have high numbers of wildlife. Um, so if we get our garbage under control, um, we're going to naturally see the population reduced. Um, shelter is a, a more difficult task, too. But people can cap their chimneys and screen their roof fence and protect their homes, and that is one way to, to reduce, reduce shelter. But there are so there is so much shelter available for them, um, but there are there are also situations um, where where the wildlife is only perceived as a problem, and and the best thing to do is educate the public on why the animals are there in the first place. What are some of the things you train your team for that other companies may not be aware of? A big part of the wildlife removal business. Um, is the fact that we work at heights, we're on rooftops, we're working on ladders, um, we're dealing with um, sometimes aggressive animals, 
and the diseases that they might carry. So health and safety plays a very big part in what we do. And something that I've always been, um, has been number one for me with respect to my, my staff safety and my client safety is making sure that my staff is informed about the individual diseases that exist in wildlife. And not only that they are aware of the disease, but they, they understand how that disease manifests itself in the host animal, how it's transmitted, and what are the symptoms if they should or somebody should become infected by that disease. So instilling this awareness in them allows them to share that knowledge um, and take measures to protect themselves and their clients. An example of this is um, a parasite that lives in the intestine of raccoons called the roundworm. Scientific name is Bayless ascaris, and what this roundworm does, it doesn't affect um, the health of the raccoon, but it sheds its eggs in the feces of the raccoon. So once the feces is on the outside of the raccoon for 30 days, the eggs then become viable. They're able to infect another animal. Now, the feces has to be eaten by an animal or a human in order for it to get into our system. And you might think that not not many people are going to pick up raccoon feces and taste it, but most of the infections that occur occur in young children that are more likely to um, pick something up that may have come in contact with the feces or um, you know touch the feces itself and then put their hands in their own mouth. So it is a it's a it is a real um, concern. If raccoon latrines exist around the property or, or in spaces where human contact is, is probable um, and it needs to be addressed and cleaned up, our experience with our competitors is that they don't know about this disease um, to any great extent. Um, certainly the media has covered it, so they may know that it's out there, but they are not aware of what precautions to take and, and certainly not, uh, they don't know enough to educate their clients on how to deal with it and and what to do to protect themselves from from becoming infected by this disease. Now, in the situation where feces exists in attics, um, we're seeing companies going up with garbage bags, um, loading up um, the garbage bag with the feces, and then proceeding to drag this bag through the house and out the front door. And all the way along, as we know, if we try to fill a garbage bag up with leaves, the leaves end up on the outside of the bag, and you end up picking them up again. Then the bag, the outside of the bag, could be contaminated. It gets set down on the floor as they're coming out of the attic or put down at the front door. So these eggs are very sticky, coating on the eggs that can transfer very easily to other substances. Um, so that's one way that these companies are removing the species. Another way is that they're putting um, in vacuums and they're dragging these hoses through the inside of houses and up into the attic to suck out insulation that has feces on it. And ultimately what's happening is that the vacuum hose itself will come in contact with the feces and they take that from one house to another house and to another house. And then the rug gets these eggs on them. If you have small children, they drop a soother onto the carpet and inadvertently one of these eggs attaches itself to it. Um, that child could become infected. And the other side of this vacuuming process is they have a large filter bag on the outside with the vacuum. So, and it is known that raccoon roundworm can become um, airborne. 
so and they're certainly helping this along by by sucking it out and having it tumble its way down inside a vacuum hose. And then it gets forced into this large bag that fills up with air, but the air can pass through the outer skin of the bag. And I'm assuming, I mean, I'm not, uh, I don't think any research has been done on this, but I'm assuming that these eggs, if air can pass through, because these are micro, micro small eggs, that the eggs could pass through the outside of the bag and become airborne out on the street for passerbys um, or other individuals to uh, potentially pick them up. So, yeah, I, I, back to your original question, we make I, I make sure that my staff are, are fully educated on this stuff, and we don't remove feces. I think it's best to leave that to people that are used to handling things like asbestos or mold, where they will completely um, do a remediation that involves, um, you know, proper uh, ventilation in the room or the area that is being um, concerned. Everything gets double bagged. Nothing comes in contact with um, the floor or anything other than where it was found and where it, and where the garbage is on the outside. Um, so I think asbestos, certainly asbestos removal and uh, mold removal companies should be hired to do this and not relying on the wildlife removal individual who really doesn't know what he's doing. You've regularly spoken about many of your methods for humane wildlife removal, be it on your website, this program, or on television. Aren't you concerned that competitors may take these ideas as their own? I don't mind sharing some of our methodology. Certainly we do have trade secrets that enable us to, to do our business better than anybody else. Um, but it's informing my competition on how to be more humane and as a result, the lives of animals are being saved, then in my mind, um, the world's a better place. I think everybody can can learn um, on how to deal with wildlife in a more humane way. I've been a, a big part of a, um, a traveling roadshow, if you will, that the Humane Society of the United States put on, and their goal was to simply educate uh, nuisance wildlife control operators in the different states on our methods, and um, I embraced that opportunity. I didn't get paid for it, um, but I thought down in, in the U United States, their uh, primary goal was to, to catch an animal on a trap and then euthanize it, and um, by sharing my knowledge on how to do it um, in a humane way, uh, more and more companies came on, on board, and uh, the Humane Society and, and local Humane Societies were, were thrilled that the animals weren't just indiscriminately being put down. These days we're talking a lot about how municipalities are managing the presence of coyotes in their communities. I know you've had a personal experience with this. Would you mind sharing that story? Yes, about uh, three or four years ago now, uh, we had a coyote that was spotted numerous times in our neighborhood. Uh, we live in a um, fairly a small um, enclave, if you will. There might be 250 houses in this area. We back on to a hydro field on one end and ravine on the other two sides. And this coyote, um, during January, uh, frequented our neighborhood. And we have a lot of uh, homeowners with small dogs, so they became, um, they became concerned that this coyote could jump a, a six-foot fence and, and take their dog. So I was asked to to at least um, 
give them some information on on what they should be doing with respect to um, solving this situation or at least protecting their pets. I took it upon myself to put together a flyer stipulating all the the, the things that they should be doing with respect to um, making sure that their pets aren't um, off leash um, when they take them for walks, um, when they put them in the backyard, kind of keep an eye on them, that sort of thing. And if they were to be confronted by a coyote, you know, to, to raise their hands up, make themselves big and, and yell and don't run away from a coyote because they'll see that as a, a, a their chase instinct will kick in because they'll think you're prey. So by sending out that flyer door to door, I also asked for an email address so that we could keep in touch for in, in the event we needed to communicate um, in the future. And then I started, we just had a fresh snowfall the day after I, I put out the flyer. And I wanted to see, because there was a sighting that morning, I wanted to see what was drawing the coyote into our neighborhood. And as I followed the coyote's tracks, it went directly to a bird feeder, um, a well-used bird feeder with lots of seed on the ground. And it had eaten some of the seeds because the homeowner had, had witnessed it doing so. But it would also spend time in a thicket, which was just an overgrown, unkept area of, of bushes. And it was, it would sit in there waiting for squirrels or birds to come to the feeder. So the number one attraction in that backyard was obviously food. Then I watched, or I followed the footprints away from that area to a composter, where it stuck its head into the base of the composter and got um, eggshells and, and other uh, foods that were put into the composter. So the, the main attraction, as it is with most animals, was food. The reason this animal was in our neighborhood. So I then, that evening, sent out another email, or sent out the first email, sorry, um, suggesting that everybody that had bird feeders, that they remove them. Um, and composters only compost things that are, that are non-meat or, or dairy-oriented. And just use vegetable matter and that sort of thing in those, so the coyote would not be attracted. And in a very short period of time, everybody complied. I, I actually approached the one neighbor that had the, the bird feeder in the backyard, and she was more than willing to take it down um, to keep the coyote from coming into the neighborhood. And I believe in the, the next two months that followed, there were three sightings of the coyote. And then beyond that, I think in the last three years, I've been made aware of only twice the, the coyote has actually wandered into our neighborhood and um, and left promptly because there was no food to keep it here. Were your neighbors satisfied with this end result? Absolutely. Um, the, the one other component that I, I failed to mention is we, um, by having this group email list of, of I would say, 80% of the residents in this community, um, they were able to communicate um, to each other about the sightings. And that in itself was gratifying for them because if they knew somebody had posted at 11 o'clock, say, on a Saturday morning that the coyote was in the neighborhood, then everybody would, would take better care um, with their pets when they would normally let them out without thinking about it um, in the backyard they would keep them indoors or, as I said, they'd take them out on leash. Um, so they they felt safer having this whole process uh, available to them. 
That was Brad Gates of Gates Wildlife Control. To find out more about Brad and his humane methods of managing wildlife in urban centers, visit www.gateswildlifecontrol.com or follow the links on this week's Defender Radio blog. We'll be right back after these words from our sponsors. You're listening to Defender Radio. Over 3 million animals are killed each year in Canada for their fur. This holiday season, why not give the gift of hope to Canada's wildlife by calling 604-435-1850 and giving a holiday gift today? The Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals works to protect wildlife in Canada. Call 604-435-1850 and please, give generously. Give a voice to the animals who can't speak for themselves by calling 604-435-1850. Bearsmart.com is the most comprehensive resource on the web for all things bear. At Bearsmart.com, we work hard to ensure people and bears safely and respectfully coexist. Join us as we give bears a voice at Bearsmart.com. Have you ever heard a coyote sing? Did you know that coyotes are also called North America's song dogs? They communicate through unique howls, yips, and barks. At Coyote Watch Canada, we're committed to fostering peaceful coexistence for communities and their wildlife neighbors by building compassionate wildlife communities one community at a time. Please visit us at coyotewatchcanada.com for more information and tips about this amazing Keystone species. This is Defender Radio. Mike McIntosh, episode 107, November 18, 2013. I'd like to now welcome the man of the week, Mike McIntosh, who will be answering some of the important questions about the return of the spring bear hunts. Hey Mike, let's jump straight in. Why are we being told that we need a spring bear hunt in Ontario? state might be uh, close to the truth. I think they're trying to appease some voters and trying to gain some votes. Uh, but their methodology, their methodology, I can't see it being effective because there's enough scientific reports to, uh, even from the government's own Ministry of Natural Resources, would suggest that a spring bear hunt of any sort in Ontario is not going to help control nuisance bears. Has there actually been an increase in nuisance bear calls in Ontario? Well, um, the pro-hunt organizations can say that with, uh, without a lot of um, expecting a lot of backlash because they didn't start recording nuisance bear calls to the bear hotline until 2004. Yeah, I think it was 2004, 2003 or 2004. So prior to that, there was really no record of nuisance bears accurately kept. I mean, nuisance bears calls. And then uh, the other problem is when they start recording nuisance bear calls, um, are they getting 10 calls for the same bear? And that's quite often the case because the bear's roaming through the neighborhood. You know, it's going to go across 10 or 20 lawns, and potentially 10 or 20 people might make that call. Are nuisance bears up? Uh, don't think so. And it's not just me. I listened to an interview on CBC Radio by Dr. Joseph Hammer. He studied this. Uh, he works as a teacher at Cambrian College in Sudbury. Um, Nuisance bear calls, or nuisance bear activity, he said there's no scientific evidence that it's up. He said it is, re- it is related to 
natural environment, food available for wild bears, and people's habits, i.e. keeping garbage away and bird feeders put away when they shouldn't have them out. The other interesting thing that's been uh, spread around a fair bit lately by the pro-bear hunt lobby is about the number of bear attacks. Um, uh, as Dr. Joseph Hammer's uh, data suggests, in the 13 years that the bear hunt has been gone, there's been one person killed in Ontario by a black bear. Um, in the 1990s, uh, there were three people killed. That was when the spring bear hunt was on. That was a nine-year period. Three people killed. After the bear hunt was gone, one. That's not really that, uh, you know, they, they might try and blow it out of proportion, but the, the chance of being attacked and killed by a bear are very, very slim. So then the other thing they're using this year is a number of bear, <coughs> bear injuries. And there's been, uh, a cor- apparently there's been five. Um, four of them, people were accompanied by the dogs. So the question is, were the bears actually retaliating to the dogs or the people? Uh, well, uh, two people never were touched at all, and, uh, and I think three people had some relatively minor injuries, definitely not life-threatening. So uh, if you're with a dog, you know, what, who's the bear trying to defend itself against? So there's not a lot of um, evidence that suggests that bears are dangerous or more dangerous than they were prior to the cancellation of spring bear hunt in 1999. In all of these discussions, we're being told that the hunt is necessary and that canceling it led to problems. But data from the Ministry of Natural Resources show that pre-1999, the combined spring and fall bear hunts resulted in an average of 4,000 bears being killed per year. But now, with just the fall hunt, it's 5,000 bears being killed per year. Is this more of the ongoing misinformation from hunting groups? Well, it is. Uh, but, um, you know, the, the 4,000 bears that were killed, that was, uh, you know, the few years preceding the end of the hunt. If you go back a few years beyond that, the number goes up slightly. But there's another dynamic that's changed as well. Back when the spring bear hunt was on in the 1990s, uh, the Canadian dollar was 84, 85 cents compared to the U.S. dollar. It was a bargain for U.S. hunters to come here and shoot animals in general, bears included. They could buy the food, gas, everything cheaper because of the difference in the dollar, including the cost of the bear hunt. Um, that's no longer the case. The, uh, the dollar now, you know, for the last several years has been par or close one way or the other. Right now it's slightly under. But, so the, the um, the headfitters are going to complain about the loss of revenue. Well, that revenue is gone, not because of the bear hunt, but because of the difference in the economy and the difference in the dynamics between the U.S. market and the Canadian market, which has affected the dollar. So uh, why are they bringing the hunt back? Well, they say they're trying to appease you know, the mayors of local towns or cities across the north, give them uh, an avenue to try and reduce nuisance bears. And police forces up there are calling for it too. Can't blame them, because the Ministry of Natural Resources had an excellent tool to deal with nuisance bears and, and perceived problems. It was an educational tool called BearWise, but also had um, was able to, the MNR was able to send out trained bear techs to live trap and relocate or uh, scare the bear away by aversive conditioning. That BearWise program was gutted, all pretty well dismantled by the Wynn government or the Liberal government because they were trying to save money. So now uh, police forces in these various towns and cities across the north are suddenly responsible for 
customers' complaints, or, or I should say residents' complaints about nuisance bears, when the MNR is no longer allowed to do that. And the same with uh, residents. They call the MNR, they get, a, they get an education online, put your bird feeder away, put your garbage away, but that's all we can do. You know, there's no more help. If the bear sticks around, they have to call the police. The police weren't happy to start with, and they were down out of this job because they have enough issues to worry about as it is. So the mayors or whoever is in charge of the cities and towns across the north weren't happy because they had nowhere to go. They had to throw their hands up, and neither were police forces. So I can understand that position. However, if you need to fix that problem, bring back the tool that already was working and maybe enhance it or expand it. Uh, but why do this? From what I understand on the interviews I've done the last couple of days, nobody's happy. Well, maybe the mayors of the towns are, but not the hunters for sure. If the spring bear hunt begins moving forward in earnest, will the perceived problem with bears in northern Ontario change? Is the situation going to change? Uh, well, there's, not a, there's no real um, credible way to measure the success or the lack of success with this initiative. Makes me wonder if that's intentional. And um, one issue that hasn't been mentioned, you know, the orphan cubs situation, the potential orphan cubs is real. But I think there's an issue that's uh, equal to that for sure. Bears come out of the den in, say, early April to mid-April, depending on the snow melt. They're not going to be hunted from the 1st of May on. So bear hunters, bear outfitters, whoever is trying to attract a resident hunter, even if it's a resident hunter himself, will start setting up bait as soon as the snow is going away and start artificially feeding these bears junk food up until the start of the hunt, at least until the end of the hunt. However, that's not a reality either. Uh, the hunt ends on June the 15th. On August the 15th in that same areas, those same areas, the hunt starts again for the fall, only a two-month gap. So the smart baiter or outfitter is going to feed those bears garbage food from snowmelt to snowfall to keep the bears coming around. So what's the result? Well, basically we have the situation the same as garbage dumps that used to be plentiful in the north. Uh, you have a much higher density of bears than you should have. Bears might, you know, there might be two or three bears per 10 square kilometers. Now all these bears are going to move into where the unnatural food is. So you have a much higher density of bears, just like a garbage dump. Uh, so what if, what if uh, a canoeer or a hiker or a camper wants to do what they enjoy on Crown land? They don't know where the bear baiting sites are. But if they happen to camp near one of them, there's a good chance they'll be, you know, in the path of a parade of bears heading to the local bait site. What can people in Ontario and across the country do to try and help protect our bears? Well, I think what a lot of people need to do, uh, very respectfully, is they need to try and learn about the black bear so they lose their fear and gain some awe and respect. Because so much information has been spread around for the last few years by hunter lobby groups, that a lot of people are misinformed and therefore afraid. They're either neutral to the hunt or all for it just because they believe what they've heard. If they if they'd spend a bit of time just doing a bit of research, it's easy to do online, they'd probably find out that the animal isn't anything like the animal as it's been portrayed. If they already feel strongly against the hunt, absolutely write letters to the premier, to the papers, letter to the editor, and um, form letters I don't think are the best solution. You know, an individual letter shortened to the point. I oppose the spring hunt. I don't like baiting. I don't want to see any bear cubs orphaned. You know, whatever it is. But that's, that's probably the main points. And send to the letter to the editor and the premier. Same letter. 
and just inundate this government with letters because that will help um, subsequent governments realize that they don't want to put their toe on this you know, politically hot potato. And it may also help the, uh, the whole population who has to deal with bears maybe learn a little more. Unfortunately, when the spring hunt was canceled in 1999, um, you know, a lot of the public education was drawn back. But the pro-hunt education trying to misinform the public to get their way never stopped. I think uh, a lot of us are groups who have some following and uh, have ability to get the message out. We need to get the message out as individual people, individual groups, but have the same message. I'm getting the impression that a lot of hunters and politicians are trying to turn this into a North versus South debate. Yes, and I think, uh, yeah, and that, you know, the 1999 and prior, when before the hunt was cancelled, it appeared to be the way it was uh, shared in the papers that it was a North against the South, so alienated a lot of people in the North. Who, you know, how dare some people who never go out in the bush tell us what to do? Well, I don't think that holds any water because um, there's a lot of people in the North who are well educated and think and are looking for better solutions. You know, we're not back in the 1800s now where the best solution was to load your gun and, sh- and blow away chipmunks, squirrels, hummingbirds, bears, whatever the animal is. We, we have brains. We should be using them. And um, I don't think the north versus south is going to hold water here because uh, there's a lot of people in the north who appreciate the wildlife to get to coexist with. They want to learn better how to do it. And uh, the people who... The letter, you know, the the information I've got back in the last few days is interesting. Most of people who support the spring bear hunt are also stating in their comments that, yes, we have too many bears, we need to kill them. We also need to kill more wolves and coyotes. Uh, In the same comment, that tells me that these people are not for wildlife conservation or ecosystem management. They're for the artificial manipulation of wildlife populations so they can shoot more, like deer and moose. And, Michael, you mentioned one thing about hunters versus non-hunters. This is not a hunter versus non-hunter issue because from the feedback that's come through the years and even lately, many hunters would do not support the spring bear hunt and they do, they do not support baiting up bears to hunt them because that is not hunting. We'll be right back after these words from our sponsors. You're listening to Defender Radio. First, they tear a hole in your roof. Then they get in, destroying your insulation, chewing your electrical wiring. Raccoons and squirrels are eating away at your biggest investment, your home. I am Brad Gates of Gates Wildlife Control. Don't wait any longer. Call Gates Wildlife Control. We'll humanely get them out and keep them out. We will come to your house and provide you with a no-obligation free estimate. Please visit us at gateswildlifecontrol.com or call 416 750-9453 After a night out with your friends there are always options for getting home safely You could call your BFF take a cab or maybe you'll grab the last bus Now there's a smartphone app to help you choose your ride Find out more at arrivealive.org Every year, dogs, cats, endangered species, and even people are caught in cruel leg hold, conibear, and other body gripping traps across Canada. Who will speak out for these innocent victims of an outdated industry? 
we will. I'm Leslie Fox, Executive Director of the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. With your support, we can bring an end to the needless and painful deaths of hundreds of thousands of animals. Become a member today at FurBearerDefenders.com to find out how you can give hope for our fur-bearing friends. This is Defender Radio. Dr. Carrie Packwood-Freeman, episode 109, December 2nd, 2013. Giving Voice to the Voiceless is an academic paper penned by Carrie Peckwood-Freeman, Mark Beckoff, and Sarah Bexell that explores how journalists, using their own existing standards, can better cover animals in the news. I was working as the managing editor of a newspaper when I first met Mark Beckoff, who sent me a copy of this paper. It truly changed the way I did my job. The paper outlines how journalists can utilize non-human animals as sources in news stories, providing realistic and practical steps that can vastly improve the media's ability to cover animal stories. Joining Defender Radio now is the lead author, Carrie Peckwood-Freeman, a professor at Georgia State University, to discuss her background as a communicator and how this paper was developed. Hi, Carrie. Can you give us a rundown of your academic background in communications? in public relations, and then I had some other careers in human resources, but during those times, I also worked in animal rights, like running a vegetarian society and just doing general activism, so I always felt like I was working on communications, because when you're an activist, that's basically what you're doing, and then I decided to become a professor um, after working uh, for about nine years um, out out of college, and so then I went to... Uh, University of Georgia and got my master's degree there, and my master's thesis was on national news coverage of farmed animals, and then I went on to get a PhD at University of Oregon Journalism and Communication School, and I got that in 2008, and my dissertation was on vegan advocacy of animal the animal rights movement here in the United States. And now I've been a professor for five years with Georgia State University um, in their communication department. It seems you were able to combine your skill set with your passion pretty easily. Oh, yeah, exactly. I mean, I knew I was already an animal rights activist, and I was basically trying to find an academic path where I could examine that. And it's a little challenging because... Um, right now, at least, there is no degree in animal rights or animal studies, or there are a few now that have just surfaced around the country, but this is a burgeoning academic discipline. So for those of us traditionally that wanted to study um, you know, human, non-human animal relations, you have to find a traditional discipline to do that through law or philosophy. And um, I chose communication, even though it wasn't maybe as obvious a route in terms of I didn't really see books published by communication scholars, but it had just been my background. So, And I was interested in kind of the pop cultural and media route to social change. And so I just decided to, you know, study it. And then all my papers and almost all my 15 publications in academia have been related to animal rights and environmental issues. What led you to want to develop the paper, Giving Voice to the Voiceless? Yeah, I well, because I think when I first got into academia and my first large paper was national news coverage of farmed animals, I approached it from an ethical standpoint, not just ethical as in we ought to 
you know, treat other animals kindly, but what are the media's obligations in terms of being fair to this issue and to these animals? And I, you know, noticed during that large study, and that was like in 2000, around the 2000 time period, that there was a bias, you know, that was towards humans, anthropocentric bias, that really isn't acknowledged as a bias, because it's really, it's, it's part of dominant culture, and that's pretty normal, that whatever is a dominant cultural bias, we don't see as a bias, it just kind of disappears. So, but I saw it as something that's unfair in terms of the way that the news was reinforcing animal exploitation as being natural and something that didn't really need to be questioned. So I saw that as, you know, a, a fault in the media in terms of not fulfilling their duty to be more balanced and objective and fair. And as I started getting more into media ethics as an area of specialty, I realized I should write a paper that wasn't really about a particular animal topic and how the news covered it, but just talking about the news and their ethical obligations in general. I felt like in order to approach this in a way that journalists and the general public might respect more, I asked some scientists to join me as co-authors, because science obviously in this society um, is highly respected, and it's a way to um, add more credibility to your study. So rather than just me as a communications scholar who studies the media saying, hey, I think the media should cover animals in a way that's more fair and bring their voice into uh, stories a little bit more, I was thinking, well, okay, I think some animal behaviorists um, and evolutionary biologists could help me with that portion of it, the idea that animals have cognition and communication skills that we could draw upon to actually, in some ways, let them speak to a certain extent in the stories about them. Or there's times when we humans need to speak on their behalf, and so how do we go about doing that? So when I was at a conference, um, in Australia, actually, probably in 2009, um, that was an Animal Studies International Conference. That was the first time I met Dr. Mark Eckhoff, the evolutionary biologist. And I asked, I told him about this paper idea. I thought we should collaborate. And so then that's how it got started. And so then we wrote it all long distance because he's in Colorado. Sarah um, Bexel was in China. And I was here in Atlanta, and we eventually had it published in the uh, UK journal Journalism Studies in 2011. What kind of reaction have you received from the academic world and journalists? Well, I actually would say I haven't had much, or I don't know what the reaction is. I know it's been cited several times, um, but I think in a positive sense uh, in other academic papers. And I personally, on my um, my blog that I have where I post the articles, it's been downloaded several hundred times. But to my surprise, I really haven't received much feedback on it. So, because I was either worried that it was, well, you know, you're always worried that when you put out something that asks for, you know, radical change in the way we view other species, that people are going to ridicule you. And I don't feel like I've received any ridicule. And if somebody reads the article about giving voice to the voiceless and incorporating non-human animals as news sources, even though the idea itself may sound a little strange, if you read the article, we provide, uh, me and uh, the two biologists, provide a way that this can be done. 
And so I think it actually is fairly rational if people are willing to read it. I mean, my feeling was that a lot of maybe mainstream journalists might read it with some kind of interest if they if they read it at all, because um, it was published in an academic journal. So I don't know how widely that circulated yet among practitioners. But I want the idea to just suddenly get people talking. Even if they want to dismiss it at first, I want people to start talking about it. And I think eventually it will become a classic article, but maybe that's 10 years from now or something like that. Um, and I think that it will end up influencing journalism in the wrong, long run, but how much it's doing so now, I really don't know. Um, but I can tell the listeners at some point about, you know, some of the things that we recommend in the article in terms of what journalists can do. As advocates, what can we do to make this a priority in the realm of traditional media? Well, one thing, if we're going to approach it from the standpoint of us as activists who, let's say, we're not working in journalism, um, and we're maybe trying to agenda build, we're trying to get into the media, I would say just make sure that you're paying attention to the news stories in your community and nationally and providing feedback, um, you know, through letters to the editor and online and everything um, on different articles and, and positive and negative feedback. So not just always complaining about things, but also when you see an article that you think was very respectful or included um, a perspective of a non-human animal, then you can compliment the journalist and thank them for the story and that kind of thing. And you can also, in, in your more critical um, comments for journalists, you can provide them with actual guidance rather than just complaining about a story, you know, propose a way they could have improved it. Um, and what we advocate in our, our Voice for the Voiceless article from the Journalism Studies Journal is that the perspectives and interests of other animals, if they relate to an issue, they need to be brought in, just like you would make sure a certain news source was not left out of a story that's pertinent to them. And so, and it could be, even if it's a story about urban sprawl, that affects, you know, wildlife or free animals. And so is there somebody, another human, uh, who can on behalf of the wild animals who are going to be displaced because their home is displaced, rather than having it just be a story about human politics or budgets or, you know, something like that, or even just talking about the environment in a more generic sense without talking about, you know, those who inhabit the environment. We want to help, you know, animate the non-human animal world and show that there, it's filled with individuals that we're sharing the planet with. Um, so the first thing I would say, yeah, is just have people communicate with other journalists to give them ideas about how they could um, incorporate the animal voice and also be a good advocate yourself, like offer for the journalist for you to be a source to speak on behalf of non-human animals in your community in a credible way. Um, I think you could also support um, independent media, too, because I do think that uh, non-commercial media is more apt to approach issues sympathetically or critically or without a bias towards um, the commercial exploitation of animals, um, because it would just be somewhat natural for commercial-based media, who's very beholden to advertising dollars, to be a little bit less incentivized, we'll put it that way, 
to be very critical of the meat industry, the research industry, the fur industry, you know, the circus industry, all these um, ways that we, um, you know, exploit animals. So those are some ways you can do it. And then now I, I like the fact in our Internet age that people can produce their own movies and YouTube videos and blogs now and put those out there. So it's also you can speak for yourself and try to circulate things yourself instead of always having to go through the mainstream media. Even though I do think that if something appears through the mainstream media or through news journalism, it has a certain level of credibility that is useful. So I do think that we need to do both. We need to produce our own activist messages and circulate them, and we need to make sure that these issues are addressed and put on the national agenda through the news media. While working as a journalist, I frequently came across people who were listed as experts in a field. But I could tell they were following an agenda, be it political or financial. How can journalists, who may not have much experience or knowledge of non-human animals, know whether they're being given a biased response? Right, and I think probably that's true no matter what the story is, right? Like, not even beyond animal stories, is we're worried that somebody has a limited expertise or everyone's expertise still has an ideology behind it. And so, I mean, one of the only ways to do that might be to, that this is more time consuming, is to interview multiple experts, right, to get a variety. I always feel like we get closer to the truth the more um, viewpoints we bring in, you know, because then you'll see maybe some, um, some certain ideas will be reinforced by others. Um, and so if you bring in a spectrum of different biologists, that may help. Um, my, one of my colleagues and I, Dr. Deborah Merskin, we're trying to put together, kind of based on this article that we're talking about, we're trying to put together uh, an online resource that's like a media style guide for covering animals. And one of the things we want to put on there are some common um, misnomers or common errors that are made. And so we wanted to create a list of specialists like Dr. Mark Beckoff and other people or Dr. Lori Marino when it comes to cetaceans that we think have a good grasp on um, certain species and um, their behaviors and their interests and, and don't have a vested interest in exploiting these animals. So that will be something that we'll probably have up in 2014. And you know, that may help, but it's not going to necessarily have every expert from all over around the world. So, but I, I really do think that it is important to see um, whether the person has a vested interest in animal exploitation. Like if you're talking to a veterinarian, but they tend to work on farmed animals, and so they get tend to get paid by the agribusiness industry, I don't think they're the best representative of what a cow's needs are or what a chicken's needs are or a turkey's needs are, even though they will know about those species biologically, from an ideological standpoint, they're really their main customer is the humans who own those animals. So, you know, they're really not an unbiased, um, I wouldn't say an advocate for the non-human animals. So those kinds of things I'd like journalists to take into consideration, just like they would with any anytime they're concerned about a bias that someone could have. I mean, we have to worry about that with any scientist these days, that just because you're a scientist doesn't mean that you are not aligned with a certain perspective or a certain um, 
you're not getting paid by a certain organization to, you know, put forth a certain viewpoint. How do we get the discussion about how we view animals started, not just in the media, but around the world? And how important is the communication aspect of that? I'm a teacher as well, so I introduce these concepts you know, into my classes, and I have a special class that I sometimes teach on communicating environmental issues. But even, you know, in the elementary schools and in the high schools and in all kinds of college classes, what I would like to see is kind of an environmental and animal protection literacy, you know, where where nobody graduates from high school or college without a better understanding of all the other species on the planet and the way that the human species in particular is um, causing problems for all these other animals. And so because I actually feel like, ironically, a lot of people are graduating from college and they really have never questioned, you know, the fact that they never really have thought of themselves as an animal or what that means or thought that much about how much other species matter. And that that bothers me, you know, that someone could graduate with a degree and you have all this knowledge about things, but in terms of how you could apply it or how you value other animals, it's something um, that really just isn't discussed. Like, I don't think you should graduate college and not have an understanding or at least have spent time questioning the concept of animal rights. You know, do animals have rights or, do, you know, does a tree have rights? So these kinds of um, questions are things we all need to talk about more. And then, like you said, you'll create a generation that is more sensitive to these issues and to the way we interact with other animals. Because I think at, at the bottom line is that we just need to respect other animals more. Because if you respect them, then you would naturally want to bring their perspective or their interests into a story. But if you approach every story from an anthropocentric standpoint, you're going to look at a coyote issue and just say, you know, hey, are they causing problems for people? You know, and but that's not the whole way to look, you know, at at it. That's a limited way to look at it. And with journalism, we're obligated to look at it from um, many different perspectives. And so that includes the perspective of, in this case, the coyote who's trying to live his or her life. Um, and that also reminds me, like I just said, or her, one of the things that everyone can do is try to ensure that the language we use when describing other animals is precise and respectful. And I think trying to avoid using the term it to describe animals is useful. But in our vernacular, almost everybody, even I hear lots of animal protection advocates say it when describing other animals because it's just so common. Because, of course, a lot of times when we don't know someone's gender um, and for a non-human animal, we'll just say it. But we don't do that disservice to humans who we don't know their gender or we're talking abstractly about humans, we don't say it. So you have to kind of compensate with the clunky his or her, it's not perfect, or just say they, use a plural uh, pronoun. Um, or I like to just say, too, to try to avoid referring to animals as like a circus elephant, a lab rat, a beef cow, or a dairy cow. And instead, just refer to them by their species name or say they're a cow who's used for dairy or a rat who is in a lab or something or is being experimented on in a lab. Um, and I, I use the term farmed animal instead of saying um, farm animal because I want to try to put a verb in there to kind of show that these labels we put on other species, it doesn't define them. Um, 
completely it's how we've chosen to define them. And so I think if you put a if you take farm and turn it into a verb like farmed, then it reminds us that we are farming them. It's not necessarily who they are. Um, and we are using them for milk, but that's not the extent of who they are. So there's a lot of power in the language that we use, and a lot of our language is so disrespectful, and it and it reflects an industry perspective. And so I try to also point out to journalists that it's a bias if we constantly refer to other animals using the same terms that the industry would refer to them, like referring to you know these birds as poultry or something like that, instead of just saying that they're a turkey or they're a duck or they're a chicken. So, but it, it's difficult with language because a lot of times we don't really have a respectful way to talk about other animals, especially when the term animal itself is often considered derogatory. APLA has made a link to Carrie's paper, Giving Voice to the Voiceless, available on this week's Defender radio blog at furbearerdefenders.com. That's all the time we've got for this week. On behalf of APA and Defender Radio, this is Michael Howie reminding you to stay informed and stay strong. <laughs>